Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Today we'll be wrapping up our uh, series through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, as we've gone through, we've seen God move in a, in a number of different ways, revealing who He is, revealing His desires, uh, and we've seen responsiveness uh, on a scale from everything from ignoring Him completely to a wholehearted commitment. Um, here in these last couple chapters, we, we see uh, the writer jumping back and forth from David to Saul. Last week, if, uh, if you remember, uh, when we were together, um, we were in chapter 27 and 29 uh, and 30, and this week we are in chapter 28 and 31. And so uh, the reason for that is the writer is trying to draw a very clear uh, distinction, comparison between David's relationship with God and Saul's. And what we saw uh, last week was, was uh, God's protection of David. Even in some of the mistakes or, or not necessarily the best decisions that he made, God was very much present with David. And David was responsive to the things that God showed him through uh, a variety of means. But what we're going to see today is an individual in Saul uh, who, is, uh, who has reached that point of no return. We're going to see a man in Saul who um, is in probably the worst possible place you can be. Because, as one of my professors used to say, there's only one thing worse than being lost. And that's being lost with nobody looking for you. And that's where Saul finds himself today. In this position where he has been Abandoned by God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, wrote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Now that doesn't mean that all that are in hell wanted to go there. It simply means that those who are there, those who are in that existence, in that life, in that place, have rejected God's revelation of himself, have rejected God's reaching out to them. Romans 1 tells us very clearly that creation itself proclaims the nature and essence of God. So if you're there because you ignored that revelation, Samuel or Saul this morning in our passage seems to reflect that sort of commitment, that sort of reality. Let's begin reading in verse 3 of chapter 28. By this time Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and the spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel and their they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw, that the Philist saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams, or by the Urim, or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and I can consult her. The servants replied, There is a woman at Endor who is a medium. So Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes 
and set out with two of his men. And they came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult a spirit for me, bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by Yahweh, As surely as Yahweh lives, no punishment will come to you from this activity. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. And when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? She said, I see a spirit from form coming up out of the earth. The woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look in your word this morning. God, I pray just for clarity in what I say, clarity in what you reveal for each person here, God. Help us to truly see and understand what it is you're doing who you'd have us be, how you'd have us respond. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, we would leave with renewed confidence in our relationship with you. Not because of anything we've done, but because of how you have revealed yourself, how you have spoken to our hearts through your word. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. So in this passage, we see that Saul is he's desperate. He sees the enemy, an enemy he's faced many times before, an enemy that he's had varying degrees of success against. But in this particular instance, in this particular case, he knows that it's a, it's a matter of, of serious concern, this army that he's facing. And so he says, the text says, he, he, could, he tried to go to God. He used, it says here, he says, he used him, he was wondering about his dreams. Nothing there. He went to the Urim, the Urim and Thummim. Remember, those are the, the lots that were given to the high priest. Where uh, if you needed something, if you needed a, a clear message from God, you could go to the priest. The priest would cast those lots and the lots would reveal God's will. But there was also an option in those lots, and this is a very important part of why they were not um, classified as divination. And that is that God could cause them to fall in such a way where he says, I'm not answering. No answer is coming from me on this one. And that's the case here. No answer came. And even the prophets... We're silent at this moment. God is not speaking to Saul. And so, in his desperation, 
he asked for a medium. Now, again, you need to understand a couple things about this. First, this sort of visitation is strictly forbidden in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's part of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, to, to even speak to a medium, approach a medium, uh, was strictly forbidden by God. So you see Saul's heart here is what? His heart here is separated from any knowledge of God even, even any perspective of, of what's right and what's wrong. Our, our key passage really today is, is verse 10, where Saul says what? I swear to you by Yahweh that as surely as Yahweh lives, no punishment will come to you from this activity. That's a direct rejection of God's word. God's word has spoken clearly that if you participate in this sort of activity, in the environment of the Old Testament, in the environment of Israel, that the penalty for that was death. And Saul not only says, I'm not going to punish you, he says what? I swear to you in the name of Yahweh, the God who has spoken this way, I'm telling you now is speaking that way. You can't get any further away from God and his desires than to ascribe his name to that which is sin. And we see it all over our culture today. We see people blessing sin and saying God's in favor of it. I've heard prayers over the last decade or so of, of people calling down God's blessing on abortion. And God's blessing on same-sex relationships. And God's blessing on, on all sorts of things that His Word is very clear is wrong. And when you're at the point to where you cannot even see the wrongness of what you're doing, when you're saying good is evil and evil is good, you are in fact at the point of no return. And it's important for us to realize today, it's important for us to recognize today, we don't like to think about this, but there is, in fact, a point of no return. That when it comes to our relationship with God, there is such a point. We read a passage earlier from Mark that communicates this. It's, it's even clearer, I think, in Matthew 12, 31-32. It says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now, now hear that. Every sin, every blasphemy can be forgiven. Even misunderstanding God to some degree can be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's the point of no return. If you can't be forgiven now and you won't be forgiven in the future, there's no returning from that. Now what is that? What is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's simply... A reality in which, like we said earlier, one turns 
that which is evil is identified as good, and that which is good is identified as evil. Mark's passage makes that clear. Matthew plays off of it as well. So what is this point of no return? First of all, in many ways it is a status rather than an act. It's a mindset. It's a position we find ourselves in, someone finds themselves in, in which the end goal is simply self-preservation, self-centeredness. Everything you do, everything you pursue, everything you want is about you. Now, now think about that. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a status, I think, that, that's even settled into the church in many ways to where everything has become about us. Whether it's worship or the programs or some other thing that we've taken that God has given us and we've turned it inward toward us and we've ignored, really, ultimately, its connection with God. God's desire for it. And a real danger in, in those particular instances is what? We feel like we're doing God's will. We feel like, man, I'm here, I'm praising God. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, felt like they were doing God's bidding and God's will in everything they did. I think sometimes we, we get this image, this picture of the Pharisees that, that, that somehow they thought, you know, well, we just need to stop Jesus because, you know, we're the bad guys and he's the good guy. We, we almost kind of picture them as these villains that are evil and they know they're evil. They're just going to set out to, to stop the good guy. Thwart the hero, as it were. But the Pharisees were very much convinced that they were doing the bid, the bidding of God. That in their lives, in their commitments, in their ways of doing things, they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. And it frightens me sometimes, myself, as I evaluate my own actions, my own attitudes, my own mindsets, are the things that I think are being true to what God wants, are they actually what He desires, or are they just reflections of my own commitments, my own wants? Second part of what we could say about being in the point of no return is that it's essentially a failure to recognize God's work. It's a failure to see what God is doing. It's a failure to acknowledge His word. To see it as 
his revelation of himself. There's a lot of people out there who believe that the Bible is amenable to their desires. And I'm not just talking about the liberals, so to speak. There's a lot of conservatives who believe that the Bible can be molded to their political purposes or their personal purposes or, or whatever else. We're going to pick and choose the passages we like and we're going to ignore the others because that furthers our agenda. It doesn't further God's agenda. It furthers our agenda. And we've turned the Bible into some tool or some instrument that we can use however we want. The Bible is not meant to be bent to our desires. The Bible is meant to bend us to God's desires. It is His speaking through various events, various moments in history. Various individuals. Timothy tells us what? It is God breathed. So it is the authority for our lives. Weakness point is also expressed through a, a complete disregard of the seriousness of sin. Again, how lightly do you have to take sin, as Saul does here, to say that Yahweh's okay with it? He's in favor of it. He would have you do this. God wants you to sin. That's essentially what Saul is saying here. Not only is God not going to punish you for it, he's going to put his stamp of approval on it. That's a point of no return. Or how do we come back from that sort of mentality if we don't recognize that we have to come back? Or what we have to come back to? Yesterday I was I was returning from Texarkana. And somewhere in that journey, I missed a turn. Meant to just come straight down 59, no problem. But I missed a turn. And I was headed toward, I saw a sign that said Rodessa. And I'm like, what's Rodessa? I've never even heard of Rodessa. And then the next sign said Shreveport. So many miles. And I'm like, I don't plan on going to Shreveport. I can't imagine why it would be on the road I'm supposed to be on. And I said to Chris, I said, do you remember 59 ever being just a two-lane road? There are all these clues thrown at me to say, Tim, you're going the wrong direction. And life is, is very much like that. God, through the Holy Spirit, sends us clues, sends us messages. It says you're going the wrong direction. But if I had ignored those signs that I saw, those, those, those things that were in front of me, 
I ended up in Shreveport. Nobody wants to be in Shreveport, let's be honest. Sorry, if you're from Shreveport, I apologize. So what did I have to do? I turned around. Got back to a road that I recognized, 43. Didn't make it all the way back to 59. I saw 43. I said, this is going to take me home. And it did. And in our lives, when God throws those signs at us, we need to see him. We need to recognize him. And we need to what? We need to turn around. And go back to the place where we knew we were in relationship with God. Get back on that path that he's leading us to. So that we do what? We head home. That place where we belong. That place we were made for. So how do we get to this point of no return? But what are some things that we need to look out for? And what I'm about to give you here is, is really not in a particular order. Any of these could happen first. Okay. These are just some things that are, that are very evident uh, of people who are, who are on this journey. And the first is replacing religion or basically just doing right. With a relationship. Jesus didn't die to, quote, make you a better person. Jesus died to bring you back to life. Jesus died to bring you into a relationship. Now, being a better person might be a consequence and is going to be a consequence of that, but that's not the goal. And I think that's where a lot of people get really frustrated with, with their faith and with their walk and so forth. That I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to do better things. I'm trying to do it the right way. And that just leads to frustration and anger and disappointment. Because as Paul says, even as believers, we still struggle with the old self. If instead our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known, if that's our goal, then that changes everything. Again, think, think of it just in terms of a, of a romantic relationship, perhaps. If, if you're trying to just please the other person, you got this checklist, I, I need to do this, 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 then two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to be frustrated because the list just keeps getting longer. And number two, that other person is going to feel like they don't really know me. They're just trying to do things. They're not listening to me. They're not paying attention. They're not spending any time with me. They're doing things that think will please me. That relationship is not going to grow. Saul in this context is not anti-religious. 
Verse 6 tells us what? He inquired of the Lord. He sought the Lord out. He did the things. He did. He took the steps that he was known to take as part of his religion. Verse 20, it says that he fell to the ground because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. Was that because of a religious vow? That was a very common thing in their time that if you have a sense of urgency and you're really trying to figure things out, well, I'm just going to fast. I'm just going to avoid those things. Was that his purpose? It would fit what we know about Saul. He was very good at, quote, doing the right acts. It was the attitude that was off. He never really understood who God was. David is described as what? A man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean David was perfect. We've seen multiple examples already where David messed up. They're going to get even worse in 2 Samuel. But through all of that, he was described as what? A man after God's own heart, which means, as we said before, what? He understood the mind of God. He was in a relationship with God. So that even when he messed up, he knew to turn around. The issue here is that not really that, that God doesn't listen or won't listen to our prayers, our pleadings. The point really is that there's no sense in him talking to us when we can't hear what it is he has to say. He's not a God who wastes time, ever. The second thing about this journey, this process, and it's usually very slow, drawn out, is ignoring truths you know to be true. You notice the irony of this, that the, the whole passage starts, the whole narrative starts there in verse 3 with, the, with what? Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. He knew, he knew that this was wrong. And yet by the end of our narrative, he's what? He's putting Yahweh's stamp of approval on. Paul talks about the hardened heart. Romans 1, Galatians 6. He talks about the, the person who ignores God's messages and ignores God's warning for so long that their heart becomes hard to that. They, they don't even hear it anymore. They're not responsive to that anymore. Third step is failing to learn from, from previous mistakes. Remember back in chapters 13, 14, and 15 when we were there, we talked about those steps that, that Saul took that, that really ultimately lost him the, the kingdom. He cursed Jonathan with a rash vow. 
the not eating here seems to be what? A rash vow. He let the Amalekites live back there in those chapters. Saul, Samuel chastised him for it. God has told you to do this, and yet you've re- ignored it. He says, I, I had my good reasons for it. What's he doing here? He's letting this woman live that is supposed to die for her activities. Back there in those chapters, he, he didn't wait for Samuel. He carried out the sacrifice on his own. I, I forced myself. You remember he says, I forced myself to carry out this sacrifice. Because expediency took priority over relationship. That's what you see here. Every step Saul takes here in chapter 28 is a reflection of the very beginning of his kingship. He has learned nothing. He's not learned from his previous mistakes. Look at the people he surrounded himself with. Here, he surrounded himself with a medium, somebody who's directly opposed to God's will. Whereas David is what? He's got Abigail. Godly woman full of wisdom, the text says, who's constantly directing him. It's interesting that the descriptions of Abigail and the descriptions of the woman here are almost identical in terms of their activity. Feeding, serving, taking care of. The difference is the person that's involved. And what their priorities ultimately are. And as I said... The last step really is is refusing to heed the warnings, not listening to the warnings that God's given. How many warnings has Saul received in 1 Samuel? From Samuel, from Jonathan, from David, the harmful spirit. Over and over and over again, God has sent warning after warning after warning to Saul, but he hasn't listened. He hasn't responded. He hasn't repented. David himself offered him clarity about the situation. We've seen that over the last few stories in the cave in Engedi, or his camp that David snuck into. And while Saul utters the words, David, you truly are the king, his heart is never turned toward God. It's just not there. Back during the Revolutionary War, there was a big moment and captured in this famous painting that we've all imagined seeing this painting. This is what? This is Washington's what? Crossing the Delaware. Okay. It was a big moment. It was a turning point in the battle in many ways. Did you know that Colonel Rawl who was the commander of the British troops in Trenton, New Jersey, where 
Washington is crossing to get to, to get to those troops. Did you know he was given a warning well ahead of time that Washington was doing this? He was sitting there playing cards when a courier came in and told him, I have an urgent message concerning the rebel troops. He handed him the piece of paper with the message saying, Washington is crossing the Delaware tonight. And Colonel Rawl took that piece of paper without reading it, without looking at it, and just stuck it in his pocket. He was busy playing cards. Didn't have time for these rebels. They hadn't won a battle. They hadn't done anything significant. Why would I worry about them? After the game finished, he pulled a piece of paper out and read, and he tried to rally his men, tried to, to meet the coming attack, but it was too late. Washington and his troops were already upon them. One historian wrote, only a few minutes delay cost him his life, his honor, and the liberty of his soldiers. Earth's history is strewn with the wrecks of half-finished plans and unexecuted resolutions. Tomorrow is the excuse of the lazy and the refuge of the incompetent. As believers, when God reveals God warns when God reaches out. Tomorrow is not an acceptable response. As a person who doesn't have a relationship with God, tomorrow is not an acceptable response. And it's not acceptable, first of all, because you don't know that you have tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed that. But secondly, because it reflects a laziness. It reflects a, a, a lack of commitment, of competency. And that only grows with each passing utterance of not today. That only expands with each time we say, yeah, I, I hear your warning, God. I know what you're saying. I'm just not ready to let go of it. I'm just not ready to move away from it. I'm just not ready to make that level of commitment. Christ rose from the grave. We can't get out of bed. God has called us to action. I hear Christians on social media and other places fretting and worrying what the world's become, what the U.S. has become. You know why the U.S. and the world has become what it is? Because Christians have failed to act on the calling to make disciples. 
to live the life that Christ has called us to, to walk in a relationship with Him. What will be our response to the correction God is calling us to today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you brought us here together today. I thank you for your word that so clearly reveals your love and your commitment to people. I'm thankful for your patience with me, with the world around me. you continue to reach out, you continue to love, you continue to express your desire for a relationship, God. The world that has turned its back on you. Thank you, God. God, I pray today as we come to this time of response that you would help all of us self-included, to be responsive to what you're saying, to how you're leading. That if there's sin that's in our lives that we haven't dealt with, that we do so this morning. But that that if there's a calling on our lives that we haven't responded to, that we respond to it this morning. that if there's an invitation to relationship with you that we've never surrendered to, never given ourselves to, Lord, that we would do that. God, whatever it is you're calling us to, however it is you revealed yourself here this morning, help us to be responsive to your word and your way. It's in Christ's name I pray.